Lesson 13, God's chastening. Let's pray first. Lord God, thank you for a good old Sunday morning. We're so glad. It's just family time to be able to come back together and say hello to our friends and family. Come together to worship you and praise you. Let it all be about you, Lord. Lord, I pray for you. I pray for your guidance in this morning's subject. Pray for your anointing. I pray that we might be able to recognize your presence with us. I pray for this morning's service all the way through. In Jesus' name, amen. Miss Beasley, I have seen me after the class. I've got something for you to sign. I've got minutes from last meeting and stuff like that for you. Okay. All right. Now, if I can find where I put it, I may have left it on my desk on the way out. One of the things I want to start with is talking about the difficulty here with this lesson, God's Chastening. Um, there's a lot of confusion here, and I want to be sure that we straighten some of it out. I was going to, may I print it out your email? And I'm pretty sure because I don't see it right here, I think I laid it on my desk and that's where it is. But I remember basically what you wrote, May wrote to me about this lesson is something I want that I start with on, when I teach this lesson anyway, that we need to cover and get out of the way. And that is the word punishment. Uh, we need to clearly understand that the punishment for our sins was put on Christ. Chastisement, although the feeling may be pretty much the same in some cases, is, is really not punishment. Like I said, it might feel like it, but there's a difference, let's put it this way, there's a difference between an abusive, mean, aggressive father beating the fire out of a kid for no good reason other than his own meanness. And a loving father spanking a child to correct them. So, to me, and I, I want to try to think that that'd be the same for everybody, that you could see the difference between someone just unduly punishing someone and, and correcting chastisement. The word chastisement used throughout the Bible has to do with correcting. Correcting, it's, it's, it's not punishment. With that, let's, uh, let's turn in the Bible, get one thing right out of the way real quick. And um, so I wanna to go to First uh, John chapter two. Remember, we've talked a few times about imputing, uh, putting something over on to someone, and that, that when Christ died on the cross and we become believers in what he did for us, that his righteousness is imputed to us, and our sins were imputed to him. <clears throat> There's a factor here that has to be considered. 1 John chapter 2. 
My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Let's just take a quick little look at that sentence that he's talking about. He says, my children, this is John speaking, but he's talking to his children in Christ. He's talking to you and I. He's, he's saying that uh, he thinks he's writing to us so that we may not sin. And in, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. <clears throat> Verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. And that's where some contrast comes in. Um, the NIV and a few other translations there translate that word that actually is propitiation as atoning sacrifice. And so let me read it that way. And he himself then is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. There's an area here where um, even the Bible itself lends itself some to, to the confusion. It simply requires taking God's word as a whole and getting to the place where we really know God and know the heart of God to be able to distinguish here in what's being said. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world, non-believers then as well as believers, are put on Jesus Christ. The punishment for our sins is put on him. Now, as you read scripture, as you study God's word, you will find, you will find references to the fact that the, the non-believers are subject to a different attitude from God and that his chastisement with them is harsh. And, uh, and even the word hate is used, that God hates the unjust and hates the ones that are uh, abusing and being, again, unjust. So there's an area here where we want to try to focus our thinking for a little bit, and, and that is on this idea of punishment for our sins. Certainly those who are unbelievers, those who never come to the place where they accept what Jesus did on the cross, the unsaved, uh, we could say that they're being punished or they're subject to punishment. And yet one thing we need to look at, and that is that the punishment, I don't even want to use the word, the suffering that they may incur here in this life, in their body, in this, on this planet, is not nearly what they will face in the great white throne judgment. You understand that, uh, uh, let me get some of this stuff over here. Unbelievers, believers are going to have a judgment, and it's called the judgment seat of Christ. 
And at the judgment seat of Christ, good morning, um, that's for believers and believers only, and their rewards will be given for the things that we did uh, after we became a child of God, and maybe even some crowns withheld because of what we didn't do, but that's the judgment seat of Christ. The great white throne judgment is where all non-believers, all who never accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ are found to be guilty of that. And they're cast into the lake of fire. The reason that we don't want to use the word punishment for their sins as, as they will suffer at that great white throne judgment is because they haven't become believers yet. They haven't become believers yet. What does that say to you and me? Simply that God's withholding his judgment from them, giving you and I time to reach out to them, to try to lead them to Christ. To, to be the, the mouth, the arms, and the legs and for, for God to lead the lost to the Lord. So he hasn't put on them yet all that could be put upon them because they're still in a state, as long as they're still alive in this body, there is still hope. There's still hope. How many, how many times? Someone's going to say shame in a way, uh, not for them. And my heart is where it ought to be. But, but so many lives are wasted. And yet, just in the nick of time, on the deathbed, someone receives Christ as Savior. <laughs> kind of a phenomenon that I don't know how to put it. It's just strange to me. But I always wish they could have come to the Lord sooner. What could they have done if they had given up before they were on their deathbed? <clears throat> yes, ma'am. Yeah, my ex, such a horrible, horrible person all his life. And then on his deathbed, supposedly, he accepted Christ. And that's okay? Yeah. That's yes, it right. is. Here, and it's an important subject. Because a lot of people think, die of fear, right? But God is merciful, long-suffering, kind. That's the heart of God. That's who we get to know when we describe God as love. He is love. He how, how can somebody be so miserable and bad all his life? And then end up the same place that we do. That it's not right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for smiling, but I'm sorry. No, I know. But, but what an excellent, what an excellent point of view, and one that that needs to be addressed. I think. Uh, let's back it up a few years. To be able to say. 
one of the things in dealing with me is you're dealing with a person that's in dealing with people that are incarcerated and for all kinds of horrible things. And so let's take this same person mean and ungodly and all of the other adjectives that you might want to put on them. To the point now that they're incarcerated and facing maybe life or maybe even death row. Isn't it our job? Doesn't God implore us to bring his word to that person in the hope of repentance and acceptance of the sacrifice that Jesus made so that the Holy Spirit can come in that person and change them and, and uh, conform them to the image of Christ. That obligation for Christians never ceases as long as that other person's still breathing. So for someone to be able to take someone on their deathbed and lead them to the Lord is a truly a magnificent thing. They finally come to the place of believing. And it's a shame that they didn't come earlier. But what those remaining and they've been hurt, and in your case, I think that's what we're talking about, somebody hurt by the meanness of someone, <clears throat> is to love them enough to realize that they won't have to be punished in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever because God forgives them even if it's in their last breath. Is that hard? Mm -hmm. It's hard. I can't do it. Well, I can't forgive them. That's a, that's a different subject, but it's, I, I, guess, I guess you realize that you're called on by Almighty God to forgive him. And, and it's a place you're going to need to get to, huh? Yeah, I have to but it's hard. Oh, I don't have any question about that. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. But yet, that's what we're called on to do. If, if God's going to forgive you. If he received Jesus on his deathbed, if he confessed his sins, and the big ifs, but, but if he believed in his heart that Jesus had died for him, if, if he received that forgiveness on his deathbed, guarantee you there's no question God's word doesn't leave any question about the fact that, that he was saved shed blood of Jesus Christ saved him and all he needed to do was believe it and apply it and receive the forgiveness so he's he is where we will be <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple things that I was just thinking about because that is so hard and it's just, I, I feel you like I feel your pain, I really do and um, one thing to remember is this battle is not against flesh and blood and you know, Satan Satan wants people to live their whole lives destroying other people's lives and, and essentially being miserable themselves you know, if I feel like the sooner we come to know Jesus in our lives, the more blessed our entire life is. Even, even though we face hardships, 
we get the blessing of having the joy of the Lord in our, in our heart for the rest of our lives, we can rely on that. We don't have to go through life being miserable and making other people miserable. And as much as it's so hard when other people are just, you know, awful um, and affect people's lives, you have to know those people go through their lives in misery too. Yes. And and even though you might not see it, you know, because a lot of people that are miserable don't act like they're depressed and miserable, but he didn't go through his life, I'm sure, full of the joy of the Lord and being blessed. You know, I'm sure he went through his life um, hurting other people, being mean, and really being tortured in his soul. And that's what Satan wants, you know. That's what he wanted for him. And it's what Satan wants for all of us. And so when we are saved and we can go through our lives, um, we are truly blessed. And then it's a little easier to think, you know, as much as he hurt other people, I still have the Lord. As much as he hurt me, I still have the Lord with me. And I don't know, but it's hard. Well, that's a really good point. And... And you brought up an important point. Most people who are mean, and I'm just leaving it at that word, are miserable. They hurt. My dad is a, probably a real good example. He's a real hard man. And many people that knew him and loved him all said he was born a hundred years too late. He is an old cowboy that didn't believe in banks, believed in taking the law into his own hands, um, wanted his kids to be good, therefore he punished but he was overbearing and mean. And I knew my dad well enough to tell you that he, he lived with heartbreak almost his whole life. He never got along with his mother. Him and his mother fought all the time. And I think he went to his grave knowing it was his fault. It wasn't her fault. He was just cantankerous and mean. And he didn't come to the Lord before he died. He got killed in a gun battle when he was wrong. His death was considered justifiable homicide because the other people were actually defending themselves. You know, he never had the chance to repent, but I know him well enough to know that he was in misery his whole life. One of the reasons he was so angry all the time was because he was so deeply hurt and he was so miserable, but he wouldn't let anybody talk to him about the Lord. So. I don't know, I guess that's off the subject, I hope it isn't, but I think in a way it is on the subject in that it behooves us to, to, to realize that the lost soul is a hurting soul. We're going to get to a little verse in here in a minute out of Job uh, that talks about we ought to count it all joy when we come under the chastening of the Lord. 
because we're his children and he loves us. So those who are not under this chastening thing and they're not the children of God, their life is miserable. And I know that's hard for you. And it's a little bit off the subject here of what we're talking about, chastisement for, for believers. But yeah, when Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross for the sins of the whole world, and that's exactly what John's saying. That's what John's saying. He, he died for the sins of the whole world. So back to the subject, if I may, a little bit, then we're, we're talking about the word chastisement. Yeah, but even for the non-believer, while their chastisement may be considerably rougher than what ours is, God's purpose, and that's what we're going to always take a look at, is, is God's purpose is to bring them to repentance. And there's a dozen scriptures that I can turn to that, that talk about the fact that that. God's always trying to lead to repentance. So um, we could take a look then at chastisement on the side of the believer and the non-believer, and but understand that both in both cases uh, it is chastisement. It's it's an effort of God to correct and change. It's different for the believer in that the believer is trying that God is trying to use the chastisement to conform us to his image, to conform us to the image of Christ. And, but for the non-believer, it's intended to lead him to repentance. But the heart of God is basically the same. The heart of, the heart of God, you know, one of the things that kind of gets overlooked and is real appropriate right to where we are is when Jesus said from the cross, Oh my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was at that point, it was at that point where punishment came. That was the punishment to have that separation from God that was complete and utter separation from God. You and I do not experience that. You and I won't experience that. That horrible experience came once for one person, and that's at that point in time when the, when the chastisement for us all, when the punishment for us all was put on Christ. So, I, I don't know how else to put it. That's basically the end of the subject. We got a whole lesson here on the subject and yet that's the bottom line. And that is that the punishment for our sins was put on Christ. The thing that's important for us to walk away from that with is that when we suffer, that we realize that it is not punishment in that sense. And, that, and we need to be able to realize that that is not the heart of God to punish us. He punished Jesus in our place. All right, let's get into this a little bit. Uh, I'll start at the top there. I want to start right there because it's a big word. Christians, as, as Christians, we're to live our lives by the principle of obedience. Remember, we've talked about that in the last three or four lessons. 
that this principle of obedience as a disobedience. Um, and um, God has never intended that his children live in sin. The Bible says, my little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. That was 1 John 2, 1. <clears throat> However, Christians do sin, and many of them take sin all too lightly. And then this was the lesson we want to take a look at what happens when the believer willfully sins. That's a... Um, <clears throat> That's a, big, that's a big problem, this thing about being willfully sinning. You remember when we was talking about uh, the, um, I'm trying to think of the word, the, um, when, we, when God used the scapegoat and he was talking about uh, the sacrifice for the atonement of sin. And he said there, and Jesus basically repeated it in Matthew, that if you come then to make your sacrifice, or if you come to make an offering, and there you remember that you've done something wrong, if you, and we talked about it in a clear conscience, that if you've done something wrong against your fellow man, you need to leave your gift or your sacrifice there and go make this thing straight. And, and what he's saying is that when you become aware that you've sinned, then is when you take care of it. But to sin when you know it's sin is called willful disobedience. It's disrespectful to God. It's, it's, it's magnified in its intensity as for what it is a sin. Let's uh, I got something here from Charles Stanley. It's too, too bad that Robin and Bill aren't here because she is a big reader of Charles Stanley. I pulled this out of one of his books a long time ago. Uh, and I, I want to read it to you. He's talking about the consequences of sin. He says, Christians tend to categorize sins, rating some as small and inconsequential and others as huge and far-reaching in the damage that they cause. In reality, no one sins in isolation. Each act of disobedience affects not only the sinner, but others also in both the present and in the future. Can't say too much about sin having far-reaching ramifications and sometimes even over into second and third generations. <clears throat> Here's the part where we want to try to get to here, what he says. He says, if we were to separate Adam and Eve's sin from its context, few of us would convict them of a great transgression. All they did was swallow some fruit from a tree with a do not eat sign. You ever think about it? And what'd they do? What was the big deal? They, they, they took a bite out of an apple or whatever it was. But was that the deal? No. The deal is that it was willful disobedience. They had been told what to do, and they knew what to do. Eve herself said, he just told us that we're not to do that. That was willful disobedience that was the problem. It wasn't the fact that they just took a bite out of a piece of fruit. 
The object is, is that they simply chose to disobey. <clears throat> Today's people think nothing of ignoring commands, even biblical ones. But God has a totally different view of our sins. Each one of us is followed, each one is followed by negative consequences. <laughs> and back to Adam and Eve again, their disobedience led to pain and frustration in two basic areas of life's fulfillment, with relationships and meaningful work. The whole world fell under sin's curse, and all people born since then have entered the world with a sin nature that alienates them from the Lord. That first rebellion plunged humanity into a terrible condition. Civilization is now plagued by ramifications of sins committed by millions of human beings throughout the ages. Is it any wonder that the world is in such sad shape? Sin not only causes suffering, it also robs us of God's best. I'll leave it with that. My goodness. There's another thing then that we get to, uh, going back to your lesson there in the second heading, the consequences of sin in the life of a believer. Sin breaks our fellowship with God and can bring his chastening hand upon us. It is true that a believer's sins were forgiven when he received Christ as Savior, but... <laughs> He must still face the practical consequences of sin. I, I often talk about the, this idea of jumping off of a tall building or a cliff. Let me ask you. If I wanted to jump off of a tall building and I knew God was saying to me, suicide is a sin. But I choose to ignore that and I jump off anyway. And on the way down, I'll, God forgive me of this sin. And God does. Am I still gonna hit the bottom? The consequences are still going to be there. The natural consequences of sin will always be there. So we, we face this again in, in jail a lot. There are jailhouse Christians. Or at least that's the term that's used. Someone said... They find Jesus on the way in and leave him there on the way out. Why? What is it that they're wanting? They're wanting God to prevent them from suffering the natural consequences of their sin. <laughs> as far as I know, God's not in the business of doing that. If you jump off that tall building or that cliff or one of it, you're still gonna splat. It's natural consequences of your sin. 
I have oftentimes, and may, and you, Pete, you will too, you'll have inmates come to you and ask you to pray, and they're asking you, without using these words maybe, but they're asking you to ask God for them not to have to suffer the practical consequences of their sin. My question to them is, are you innocent? If you're totally innocent of what you're accused of, I mean absolutely pure and clean, if you're innocent of what you're being accused of, then I'll pray for God to correct the wrong and for you not have to have, not have to punish sin, I mean not have to suffer punishment for something you didn't do. But if you're not totally innocent, then I won't pray the way you're asking me to. I'll pray for a judge to be lenient. I'll pray for a judge to have a heart. If your heart's right, I'd pray for his heart and your heart to be coincided. But I will not pray for you not to suffer the practical consequences of what you've done because that's not natural. It's not going to happen. You're still going to suffer the consequences for what you've done. But that's off the subject in a way because it's not still approaching the subject of, of chastisement. Anybody want to stop me? Anything else we need to discuss before I try to move on a little further with us? You okay, on? I see your wheels spinning. And, uh, and with several of you. Uh, you know, it's one of the things, one of the reasons I like what we've done about putting this lessons together is you can read the lesson. Got things on your heart, and here's the time, here's where we need to talk about it. Just, just like with what you said. I, I, I want to not spend our whole hour there. But, but, but still, if you've got something to say, say it. Let's talk about it. All right. Um, God chases his children. Let's see if we can kind of get to that. One of the things I've got here... Um, Will you help me, Chris? Jason? Um, like, just take one for you and your wife and give one to Jeff and Connie, right? because I didn't make a whole bunch of those. It's a five-page document I want to pass out and let you have. Uh, this is also something that I've had for a long time. This was uh, written by a uh, pastor, Greg Ledbetter. Yeah, Bible Baptist Church over in Ireland. And the whole thing here is a study of Hebrews 12. But it deals with this fact of, of chastening. Um, so when you've got that thing about halfway down on that page one, the first page there, where you see the letter D, I want to start there says the Bible has much to say about chastening and says it actually is very, very good for his children and that if you are not experiencing it, you are not even in the family of God. I don't really want to dwell on that other than to say that there's truth there. Chastening comes because we're children of God and chastening comes from the hand of the Father. Number two, the message in A. 
The simple fact is God chastens his children. God is active in the life of a believer. We always want him to be active, blessing and helping and honoring us. But his biggest activity is in chastening us. Deuteronomy 8, 5 says, Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. God spoke to King David about young Solomon, 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14. He, Solomon, shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten in him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Meaning that he'll use humans to chasten us. E, Psalm 18, 18, 118, 18. The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over to death. <laughs> Beat my butt till it's raw, but he hasn't killed me. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. I know, Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. Now, none of that may sound great to you, but it is vital to us as believers. We'll leave that for now. I'm going to come back to a little bit of it in a little while. But I wanted you to have that. Take that home with you and read it. It's a real good study on Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> the only thing I want to finish on that page one there before we move on is at the bottom of the little paragraph. May we see that though we may be forgiven of our sin, we, like David, must face the practical consequences of our actions. May we see that sins often have lifetime consequences. Let me share with you some of how that can work. Easier for me to put it on the man than the woman but it can be just as easily reversed. Let's say we have a married man and he's a father of a couple of children and he cheats on his wife. She finds out about it, breaks her heart. They talk about it. She forgives him. They reconcile. They go on and he does it again and again to the point that finally divorce comes. I want you to look at the lives that are hurt. The husband is the one who sinned in this little scenario, but the wife suffers. I know of a situation where there was a divorce and the wife was young. She had, and it had happened while they were married, um, a disfiguring accident. So she felt after the divorce that she was stuck, being punished for the rest of her life, being single, and she wanted to be loved. 
but she didn't think anybody would love her because of her disfigurement. I know that that changed. But you understand how she felt and what she went through for years. Now we've got the children to deal with. What happened, Mom? What happened? Mom don't want to tell them bad stuff about their dad. So she tries to avoid the truth. So the kids live not just into adulthood, but maybe their whole life, maybe till then their 50s or 60s. Because ten, children tend to take things personally, don't they? Must have been my fault. Don't, want, don't know what I did caused all the trouble between my mom and All I'm trying to say is this, guys. Sin never affects just the sinner. Never. It always has far-reaching ramifications. And sometimes to generations. It'll always haunt them. Sin's never isolated. And that's what Charles Stanley had said in that thing. It's never isolated. <clears throat> and let's go to the top of page two. We'll work our way through a little bit more. I'll, I'm going to move through, I guess, because of time. I'm going to have to move some, through some of this pretty quickly. Uh, just reading out of that first paragraph, I'll get down there, your third line down. says, there are some things we must not do if we want to avoid serious consequences for one we must not sin willfully to deliberately disobey God is an act of rebellion against his authority that's what we just read in the last two lessons we're talking about authority and it can bring God's chastening hand upon us God does not chasten his children every time they do something wrong he isn't like that he loves his children and he is gentle and patient with them. David said he has not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Psalm 103. There's a bunch of Psalms that I'd like to be able to get to. I might not. Um, but we already covered that. It was an act of disobedience with Adam and Eve. Drop down. There's a little. The next one there says, "God wants us to judge ourselves." That's an important thing. At the at the end of the first paragraph, it says, "If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged." First Corinthians eleven thirty one. If we will not judge ourselves, and here's the thing: if we judge ourselves, if we know something is wrong, and we move to correct it. That's a good and godly thing to do, number one, but it also means that God does not have to put forth his chastening hand. God can back off of that chastening if we recognize our sin and begin to do something about it ourselves. And that's part of Christian maturity. Yeah? Part of our prayer life would be revealing things to us that, oh, that's not quite right. I need to get this or that out of my life. 
might seem like minor things, but if they're if the Holy Spirit's convicting you, I'll take it to something as simple as smoking cigarettes. And in my case, <clears throat> no, I'm going to tell you what. And to this day, I have trouble with my mouth. I I I what I I grew up with truthfully every other word being a cuss word. I knew how to cuss when I was three years old. Um, and I mean that seriously. And, and my whole life it has been a thing where I have really, really, really had to fight that. But it's been a fight that I've waged. God has helped me. I am a thousand percent better doing pretty good, not perfect. But God hasn't had to beat me up over it because I've, I've, I've recognized it as sin and I've tried to do something about it my whole life. And that's what it's saying here. God wants us and wants to allow us to correct things by ourselves. And because of time, I'll leave that. God has a purpose in chastening us. God chastens us that we might learn obedience. Why do you chasten a child? <laughs> I, get, I, I know of a family. They have three children. I think the oldest one's about 10 or 11. They are rotten. You can't hardly be around these people because they're rotten kids. Why? Because they don't believe in chastening them. For some reason or another, they've got this modern idea that you shouldn't spank your children. To me in this family, five people need a spanking. Mother and daddy and all three kids. You can't be around them. You can't talk to one of the parents on the phone because of all the noise and ruckus going on in the background because the children are misbehaving. <laughs> a mother or father ought to be able to say knock it off kids I'm on the phone and that would be the end of it they need to learn to obey what kind of adults are those kids going to be I hope I don't wind up seeing them at Middle River Regional Jail because they don't know a thing their parents aren't teaching them a thing about obedience it's not I don't think it's even a subject in their house God's purpose is that he loves us enough that he wants us to choose to obey. And remember we talk about that all the time, that it's always still boils back down to the fact that it's a choice. Turn over to page three and we'll hit on what we can in a couple of minutes. Because here, here lies something vastly important. God chases us that we might be partakers of his holiness he does not chasten us because he is angry with us and wants to punish us and you know if I could have better put that sentence right at the beginning because that's that's the whole thing here behind this chastening subject God is not punishing us for our sins that punishment was put on Jesus Christ when he said, why have you forsaken me? Why? You know, if you really, really, really begin to, to, to study 
contemplate, pray about, think about, read in God's word about that moment. That's the horrible moment. That's the horrible culmination of everything that happened because of Adam and Eve and everything that happened after that and everything that's still happening and everything that will happen, every horrible sin ever committed was put right there on Jesus Christ in that moment when he said, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a horrible, horrible punishment. That's the punishment, guys. Yes, he died. Praise God, he rose. <laughs> Death couldn't hold him. He conquered it. But I would that none of us ever lose sight of the fact that the punishment, God's hmm, unquenchable anger at all of the horrible sin in the world was put right there and right then. And can you see something about your husband? Jesus paid for his meanness and rottenness and horror and the things that he did to you. And for every one of us who've suffered, and it includes most of us, I don't think I even really know anybody that hasn't suffered something. But the punishment for it, God's righteous anger against sin was paid for right there. All of the rest of it has to do with God loving us. God loving the unbeliever to bring him home, to bring him to repentance, to bring him to Jesus Christ, to bring him into the family, to make him a child of God. And for those who have become children of God, he wants to, what the word while ago we talked about, is he wants us to bring us to obedience. Why? Why? Because when we come to a place where we obey God from a willful character, when we choose to obey God, that choice is made only because we know, we know, we know that what God wants for us is right. It's the right thing to do. If you want to live a life that's peaceable and happy, joyful, then, then, then you obey God. And why does he want us then to obey God? Brings us this one step further. And that is that he's conforming us to the image of Christ. Chastisement is God's way not to punish our sin, but to teach us, to help us, to bring us to where he wants us to be. I've said this before and I'll say it again. If I assume that God exists to make me happy, then I won't understand his plan to make me holy. Because that's God's whole intention for me and for He wants us to be Jesus. And here's another thing. <clears throat> Down, got a couple of minutes. <clears throat> At that number four, says God chastens us 
that he may vindicate his name. We bear Christ's name. Most of us don't think about that often. Uh, one meaning, in going back into uh, ancient English, somebody that really knows this may be able to verify this, uh, but to say that a person is a Christian is saying that we are, that we are Christ's one. We are Christ's one. We're, we're one that belongs to Christ. We're Christ's. <clears throat> what we do reflects upon him. If we disgrace his name, God will chasten us. <clears throat> I don't want to get into David's thing. I got into that one time before and it wound up being a whole hour session to try to get in to explain it. Let me go to that. Uh, this is, you don't have to turn there. This is quoted from the Living Bible. It's Job chapter 5, verse 17. If you want to round it down. Job 5, 17. But from the Living Bible it says, How enviable is the man whom God corrects. Oh, do not despise the chastening of the Lord when you sin. <laughs> Why? Hey, see, God's, God's correcting his children. If God's correcting you, guess what? It's because you're a child of God. You're a child of God. Don't um, let me see if I've got it here somewhere. Uh, someone has said that they wish that God would leave them alone. <laughs> if God didn't love you, he would leave you alone. From chastening, we get some other words. And I'm going back to the original languages. And, you know, you're going to have to speak to Will's Kitchen on this. He's... He's the guy that really knows all of these, uh, the Greek and the Hebrew, and I wish that I did, but at my age, I'm not going to go back to school and try to learn all of that. But from the same word which we get chastening, we also get discipline. And from that word, we get disciple. You ever thought of that? It's out of being disciplined that we become a disciple. <laughs> about that See, it's out of this chastening that we can number one know that we're a child of God if we weren't a child of God he would leave us alone and you know if there's anybody out there in this world that God is leaving alone then guess what's happening they've said no to God so many times they've pushed him so far away They've pushed him and pushed him so far out of their life that God forbid it come a time when God wouldn't just leave them alone. I don't think that there'd be a situation that I could think of in life that would be more horrible than that. That God's just, I pray that God's not leaving anybody alone. I don't care how mean they are or what they're doing or anything. I pray that God's not leaving them alone. Bother their conscience. Stir them up. Do what you've got to do, God, to bring them to repentance. Uh, I don't want God to leave anybody alone. If he's not leaving you alone, that's good news. God loves you enough that he's not going to let you get by with things that you ought to be doing. He'll bring them to your mind. He'll let you know. 
I'll close with that. Uh, well, I do have, I've got one second. I had uh, marked myself down here something that I wanted to read. I got it down to today's daily bread. I just marked down the scripture. It's Psalm 103. And let me get there right quick. Psalm 103, verses 8 to 14. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Praise God.